So as we look at this passage today, we've been going through the book of Romans, we start with this phrase, which is pretty challenging, talking about us being living sacrifices, offering yourselves to God. And in the spiritual and religious world, we think of sacrifices like Lent. Some people practice things like Lent. I had a friend um, a number of years ago who was trying to challenge his daughter to be a little more sacrificial in her Lenten disciplines. Her family celebrated Lent. And he was trying to convince her that candy or dessert or ice cream was a little bit more in line with the idea of the sacrifice than broccoli. (laughs) To which she replied, Dad, maybe you could give up beer for Lent. (laughs) Dad was not budging on that one, to which the young girl said, Jesus died on the cross for you, and you can't even give up beer for 40 days. I'm not sure who won. What this is talking about is more than just those monthly sacrifices or the sort of challenges we put ourselves up to in religious or moral life. This is talking about dying to self, the sort of thing Jesus mentioned again and again to his disciples. The idea in Romans 12:1 is die to your desires, to your aspirations, to all claims of rights for yourself, and give them and your whole self, not just your body, that body means your whole self, to God. He has complete control. The idea that's being talked about in verse 1 of Romans 12 is to obey whatever God calls me to, and to accept whatever he sends in my life. In other words, God wants more than your 90 minutes on a Sunday morning, even more than your 10% tithe if you come from that sort of a tradition, he actually wants you. And the definition of worship is to give yourself to God because you will worship something, you will give yourself to something. Ben Witherington, a commentary writer, put it this way, worship is where the creature recognizes that God is the creator and we are not. It is ordering oneself under the divine, under God, and therefore it is also a denial that one is Lord of one's own life. All of life should be an act of worship. But how do we do that? It's not that easy. In verse two, he explains the process a little bit. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do I lay myself down? Well, Don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can understand God's will and walk in that way. What he's doing here is contrasting two themes. It's conformed, transformed, don't get worked up on those two. They're basically the same idea. There's a transformation that happens in some way. You get conformed to something. It's the contrast between the world and God's will. And that word world is basically the age, the eon, your culture the culture in which you live, versus God's will. What Paul is suggesting is you will by nature be conformed to your culture. We all do this naturally, we do it unthinkingly. Let me give you an example. If you're a 17-year-old and you are thinking about your future life, here's how that 17-year-old process will go in America. You will think, I would like to maybe go to college. You'll start thinking through the sorts of colleges. 
You'll think when I'm there, I'll make the choices of what classes to take or what I want to major. And yes, I'll talk to my parents because they're going to be paying for a lot of it. But ultimately, the decision is mine. And what I do with my free time when I'm there or what fraternity I get involved in or whether I don't at all, the activities that I do, it's sort of my choices. And ultimately, down the line, even as you're thinking about your distant future, you're thinking, maybe I'll get married, maybe I won't, and you sort of have a date in mind if you're really one of those forward thinkers. The sort of job you want, the city you want to live in or don't want to live in. In all of it, you're doing a very individualistic process. You're thinking, what would I want? What can I imagine? That's because you come from America, an individualistic culture. If you instead had grown up in the Far East or in Africa, a more traditional and collectivist culture, your thoughts as a 17-year-old about your future would be, what is expected of me? What would benefit my clan, my family? What will bring honor to my community? What's within the realm of possibility for somebody from my village? It's a completely different way of norm. Paul is suggesting that your culture may not be God's will. And so don't assume that what you assume is God's will or is in line with what God desires. It takes, as Paul talks about, a transformed mind, a renewed mind. He's saying, look, you're going to be conformed to something. By nature, you'll be conformed to the culture around you. It takes the Spirit's renewal inside of you to be conformed to Christ. And he's asking you to answer the question, what is the overriding influence of your mind? Is it God or is it yourself? Is it Christ or is it the culture around you? Ben Witherington again puts it this way, Paul is talking about a change in worldview, a revolution in thinking, not just an attitude adjustment, but a new and Christ-like way of looking at the world, a whole new way of approaching life. Then, with that renewed mind, then you can discern the will of God and know what God wants of you. And I'm gonna say this is not easy, okay? To the extent that your self-understanding and your worldview is shaped by your culture instead of the worship and word of God, to the extent that your worldview and self-understanding is shaped by your culture instead of the worship and word of God, to that extent you will not be able to discern God's purposes very well. And it's hard to know how much am I being shaped by the culture and my own desires versus God and his intentions. You may even think, because I do this too, that you and the way you're living and the way you're thinking is in line with God and what he really wants. But the challenge is very often it's just my interpretation of God is read by my culture and not really God's way at all. We get off track when we do things like try to answer our own questions about what we're supposed to be doing in this life. So somebody might say something like this, well, um, I'm making this choice, I'm doing this because I've, I've taken some time to think about it and it's what I really want. And God wants me to be happy, right? 
Therefore, what I'm doing must be in line with what God wants. But the problem is there's nothing in the Bible, nothing in Christianity that simply says, yeah, God wants you to be happy. Think about what what Jesus says to Peter. The very last words Jesus says to Peter, and I don't have it up on the screen, is this, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and will carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Peter, you wanna know what I want from you? You used to go wherever you wanted. Make your own choices. But in the future, because you're mature in Christ now, you will lay down your life for the glory of God. Follow me. I don't think that made Peter very happy. Sometimes we get off track because we go to friends for discernment. And friends are actually necessary for discernment. You need people around you to discern. You shouldn't be making decisions in a vacuum. Even if you're married, it shouldn't just be one other person. There should be other influences in your life. But the challenge is, often our friends are very loving and kind, but they're not aligned with God's purposes either. Paul would ask, have they, have your, your closest confidence, offered themselves fully to God? Is their mind being transformed and renewed by the Spirit of God? Or are they mostly conformed to the culture and they like to dip their toe in the Jesus pool? Their wisdom and advice may sound like God's will, but they really just reflect the culture's values and and echo back what you want, because they want you to be happy. Paul is suggesting we can only discern the will of God with a deconformed worldview, which means we have to be aware of the culture and worldview around us, and a spirit-transformed, gospel-renewed mind, one that responds to the mercies of God by laying our whole lives down before God. Then, then we can start to figure out God's purposes. And what is God's purposes for his people? Well, Paul starts to give it to us in verses three through five, and actually the whole rest of the chapter, and really chapters 13, 14, and 15, but we're not gonna get into all of that this morning. In verses three through five, he writes, for the, by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you not to think of himself or herself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in Christ and individually members of one another. Paul is talking about the radical unity that we are called to have. If we are aligned with God, submitted to him, offering ourselves, we will be a people of God who love one another in unity. He talks about one body with many parts. This is also in 1 Corinthians. And his argument is, look, regardless of position, regardless of what you do, God wants you in this family. You are part of one body in Christ, all of equal worth. Equality is something that we value in our culture, and it comes from this Christian identity, but it's been kind of pushed off of that. See, our culture says this about your, uh, your equality. It's your identity and your worth are based on your performance. 
Now, we say that all people are created equal, but actually a lot of that has been pushed aside, and it's really now what you do and what you've achieved determines your identity and your worth. You know it because you feel insecure about your identity or your worth if you're not achieving much. And we base our equality on being able to do the same things as others. The Christian gospel pushes deeper. It says your worth is that you were made in the image of God. Every human being, regardless of their faith, is made in the image of God and has equal worth. And on top of that, this radical thing is that in Christ we are all one. As Paul talks about in Galatians, neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, we are all equal value because of the gospel. It's why Paul is able to say, look, the people of God should be marked by a deep humility. There is no place for superiority or disdain or inferiority. There's no place for superiority based on your talent or your beauty or your intelligence or you've got your life together and they are a mess. There's no place for superiority or inferiority based on gender or citizenship or skin color. Amen? The gospel pushes us into a deeper equality that's not based on performance, not based on doing, but based on who God is and how he has made us and called us. And he's called us into a body of Christ that all of us have a calling in that body and in this world. It doesn't matter your talents, your abilities, your intelligence, your skin color, all those things. You are called into this world as a gift for this world, which is what he's talking about in verses six through eight when he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. All of us have something to offer. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We have callings into this body of Christ. The list that he gives us is not exhaustive because we know, we know this because of both, both the way the lists are and the way the other lists appear in the New Testament when they're talking about gifts. In New Testament Greek, when you get a list, you shouldn't assume it is the end of the thing. It is these types of things. That's why love, joy, peace, patience, kindness are the fruit of the Spirit, even though there's a whole bunch of things that aren't listed at all, but are probably still fruits of the Spirit. Paul says, look, I don't have enough words to give you, so I'm just gonna give you like nine or seven or five. These sorts of things, prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, generosity, leading, mercy. In 1 Corinthians, there's the more famous list of wisdom, words of wisdom or knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, discernment, tongues, interpretation of tongues. Later in the chapter, it talks about helping, apostleship, administration. Ephesians 4 gives us offices, evangelist, pastor. It also has teacher in there. 1 Timothy and Titus gives us uh, offices like bishop or elder or deacon. The point of all of these is not to decipher and define terms. I think you can get into a little bit of unnecessary burrowing that doesn't have exegetical backing when you're simply trying to define terms experientially instead of biblically.
The point of this list of gifts or any list of gifts is the very point that Paul's making, and we see it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. The very end of 1 Corinthians 12 is Paul gives this whole list, and then he talks about one body, many parts, and then he says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What is that excellent way? It's love. You could be the most amazing spiritual person with mind-blowing abilities, but if you have not love, you're just a waste. God's purpose for any gifting, which means for you, is to offer yourself to love others for the glory of God. All of this is telling us God wants you. God made you and he made you uniquely. He has called you and given you a purpose and it is for the good of others and for God's glory. Not your own glory. There's an apocryphal gospel called the Gospel of Thomas, and some people who have taken religious studies sort of courses in college say, well, why isn't the Gospel of Thomas included with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I'll tell you why. Because the stories don't align. They don't have inherent integrity with the rest of Scripture. One example is a story in the apocryphal Gospel of Thomas is of a young Jesus. The young Jesus takes a bunch of clay vessels, clay pots, And in front of some people, maybe his friends, I can't remember, he turns them into pigeons and they fly away. Oh, this Jesus is awesome. Do you see that power? Pots become pigeons? This is awesome. That has nothing to do with the Jesus of the Bible. Jesus never does a miracle for his own sake, for his own popularity, for his, hey, look at me, aren't I great? Now, if we had the same power as Jesus, we totally would. Diving contest, never hit the water, just flipping, then I'm gonna land on top of the water, right? I mean, we could think of some fun. Yeah, I'll heal some people, but I got some other ideas too. God wants you and has empowered you, but it is never for your glory. I had one friend a number of years ago who thought for sure God wanted him to become rich one day. Because, because, he said, because I think God wants me to be generous to all these ministries and missions and churches. That's obviously the main reason he was thinking God wanted him to be rich. Now, obviously, if you are, you have an obligation to love others and to glorify God with it. But we don't pursue these things for our own good. Look, there's a benefit to that list that was up there. There's a benefit to understanding the sorts of things God is doing in people's lives, how he wants to use them, and to having self-understanding. If you're one of these people who's not really sure how God wants to use you in this day and age, in this season of life, ask a couple of questions like, what is it that you are highly sensitive to? And the idea is this, what do you notice when it's lacking? Or what would you like to receive yourself? That's probably an indication of your gifting and calling because you're sensitive to it. I really wish somebody would come up and say hi to me. I really wish there was better music. I really wish this guy would stop talking. All right, come on. No, but really, like that sensitivity is a part of how God has gifted you. What we enjoy, 
have experience with and is constantly affirmed. I really enjoy teaching, and this is something that I learned not just in this setting of preaching, but in teaching Sunday school classes to teenagers and adults. Through the past 15 years, I've had an opportunity to do that. I love making up a lesson plan. I have a classroom. I usually start sitting down, but then I get excited, and I stand up, and I'm on the whiteboard, and I'm talking to them, and I'm engaging. I have questions. I want to hear what they have to say. I play devil's advocate. It's so fun. I love a group of 10 or 15 to teach. What I'm not good at is teaching one-on-one. Because for some reason in a coffee shop one-on-one, they don't appreciate when I stand up and write on the whiteboard. And that's the only way I know how to teach. With full engagement and with a lesson plan and laying it down in the whiteboard. But there are other people who have this remarkable gift of sitting with other people, one-on-one, and it sounds like they're just having a conversation, but in the process, There is a teaching going on, there's discipleship going on, there's learning going on, there is wisdom being shared. That is a gifting. Some people, I've been told, like to-do lists. Some people, I've even been told, like spreadsheets. There's this strange alien creature who likes order and spreadsheets and to-do lists and numbers I'm not one of them. When a spreadsheet is laid before me, I feel like, well, there's an, many of you have seen The Lord of the Rings, but many of you have not. There's a creature called Gollum, this horrible, ghastly creature, and at one point he's caught and he's wrapped up in elven rope, and because it's this holy rope, it burns him, and he screams out, it burns us! When I see a spreadsheet, that is what is crying out in my heart. Administration is a gift. It is a spiritual gift, even. What about some things that weren't even on the lists in the New Testament? Hospitality, or prayer, or empathy, or humor. There are people who are so gifted one-on-one with listening and conversation or cooking, or music. Some things are more supernatural, some things are more basic. But the question you should be asking is, how does God want to use me by his spirit to bless and love other people for the glory of God? So if you're not sure what you're gifted at, just start with this. How can I love my sister, my dad, the annoying guy at work with too much cologne, the lady across the street with her kids. How can I love them? And then act on it. And look, if you're not a good cook, it's possible that making them a meal is not going to be loving. (laughs) Find something you can do, some way you can pray, engage, bless. God's intention in creation is that we live for one another. We are made as a gift. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body talked about how humanity is created as a gift for one another. The simplified version goes like this. A person reaches his full potential only by living for someone. Hear that. 
Many people wonder, who am I? Why am I here? The answer is found in self-serving. Sorry, self-giving. Self-giving love. A person can only find his true self by giving himself away. So the point is not which gift, but that you are a gift. God made you uniquely, and he made you uniquely for others. So what do you do with the things God has given you? Well, let's look at what Jesus did with the things given to him. In Philippians 2.6, which we confessed earlier today, we cited this, Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. It goes on to say that he dies on a cross for us, right? That word grasped there was translated by theologian Tom Wright as exploited, and there's a note in the ESV footnotes that says that word grasp can also be held onto for your own advantage. So ready, here's the understanding that's going on here. Jesus is God, but he never exploits, takes advantage of his godness for his own sake or his own benefit. You talk about a gifting, the gifting of Jesus was God. But he only uses his divinity for the good of others and the glory of God. That means your strengths, your gifts, your abilities, your time, your resources, your connections are not for your own benefit or good. They are always intended for others and God's glory first. Take, for example, if you're the sort of person who's just really good with people. Some people have a high social IQ. They're really good with people. People love to be around them. You can use this to make money for yourself. You can use that ability to get people to like you, to be included in the inner circle. Or you can use it to welcome and love and make others feel known. You can use it to manipulate and for your own good, or you can use it to bless as a gift for others. Do you see how countercultural this is? Our culture says your time, your money, your abilities, your connections are yours. And on the side, you should probably do something generous with them. That's why it takes a spirit-transformed, gospel-renewed mind. We cannot do this of our own nature. Paul is saying, stop grasping for your rights and your glory. Live for God and love one another. Verses 9 through 21, I'm not going to walk through the list. Verses 9 through 21 are pretty obvious. You You can see what it's being said in those verses. It's basically love. Love in a radical, gospel-centered way. Love humbly and generously. Read through it on your own. I'm going to summarize Romans 12 for us. Romans 12 can be summarized by this, and I just came up with this. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You can quote me. This whole thing is impossible on our own. It's why Paul starts where he does in Romans 12. 
The NIV reads this way, therefore, in view of God's mercy. This is the beginning of chapter 12. So if you go read through Romans, Romans 1 through 11 is Paul laying out the gospel. Here's what God has done. Here's what God has done. Here's what God has done. And then in Romans 12, he says, therefore, in view of what God has done, live this way. Grace always precedes gratitude as the response. It is not this is what you must do so that God will love you. It is this is how God has loved you, therefore respond. And it's always that order. Otherwise, we will try to do good things, be right sorts of people for all the wrong reasons. We will obey the commands of God so that God has to bless us. He has to accept us then. We'll obey out of fear and then we'll be angry if things don't work out because God owes us. The gospel is the necessary starting point. The gospel is the necessary starting point to living out God's will for us and our love for one another. Why is the gospel the necessary starting point? First, because the gospel is the great equalizer. Remember, we've talked about this in past weeks. You are more sinful than you can dare to imagine, which should humble us. I'm not better than anyone else. There's no place for superiority or blaming. We are all equally sinful and broken and needy. Humility. But we are so loved in Jesus Christ, it is mind-blowing. We are so loved by God the Father through Jesus Christ that we can have total confidence. We don't need to use people. We don't need to guard our place, protect ourselves from others. Well, there's times when you do, but we can have confidence because of Christ. I'm gonna quote this guy that I've never quoted before. He's got this longer quote, Tim Keller. He writes this, when we think about the gospel, we realize we are lost sinners. So whoever stands before us is no lower than we are. And though we are sinners, we are wholly justified by God himself. Therefore, we have nothing to prove to anyone. Without the gospel, we need to convince ourselves and others of our value by associating with the most admirable persons possible. But in the gospel, we find the most admirable person of all is already pleased with us. So we are free to love the outsider, the difficult, the awkward, and the marginalized. The gospel is the necessary starting point. The gospel is the great equalizer, and the gospel is also great power. When you understand the mercies of God, that gospel, God's love for you, begins to melt your hardness and selfishness and fear. And God's indwelling spirit that takes up residence in your heart transforms our inner self. Our desires and assumptions and worldview begin to be shaped into his. And then we begin to see ourselves as he sees us. Loved, wow. We begin to see the world as he sees it. And we're saddened, grieved. And we see others, all others, as he sees them. People in need of love and us as gifts for them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have called us into this community and into this life for your good and your glory. 
and that is that we would lay down our lives for you and for others as you have laid down your life for us. By the power of your spirit and the truth of your gospel, transform our minds and give us hearts to see how you have made us and called us uniquely to be your gift in this world as your son was for us. In whose name we pray, amen.